Well, several years ago, a buddy of mine and I were canoeing down the Lewis River in Washington. Mountains on either side, crystal blue waters. And as we rounded the bend, there was at eye level, sitting on uh, an old tree, a bald eagle. And, and it's shocking because they're, they are so large and so majestic, and you just don't expect to see one, especially too often here in the South. I remember when my kids were little, they were fascinated with them, and they used to get online and watch uh, an internet live feed of a bald eagle's nest. And if you know anything about these amazing creatures, you realize that often when the mother comes home, rather than being a comforter, she becomes the flight instructor and kicks one of the little ones out of the nest because it is time to solo. Some fly, others flap, others just flop, but they never hit the ground because she quickly swoops down and catches the little one on her back. You see, the examiner is also the provider. The one who tests is also the one who ensures success. Andrew Murray, the famous South African minister, explains these similarities with the church. Quote, he stirs up your nest. He disappoints your hopes. He brings down our confidence. He makes you fear and tremble as all your strength fails and you feel utterly weary and helpless. And all while he is spreading his strong wings for you to rest your weakness on and offering an everlasting creator strength to work in you. And all he wants is that you should sink down in your weariness and wait upon him and allow him in his Jehovah's strength to carry you as you ride upon the wings of his omnipotence. What a picture. What a picture, what a seemingly dichotomy, the, the examiner, the one that, that allows, yea, even ordains the trials which test and sap our strength to the point of exhaustion is also the one that provides for us. Not just a way of, an esca of escape, but the strength to carry through, all in desperate dependence upon him. Now, the examiner is the provider and those are not at cross purposes. And this morning, as we look at this text, this is exactly what this Hebrew house church needs to hear. This is exactly what they need to understand in the midst of persecution and trials. God is not asleep at the wheel. God is, is not too weak to overcome the trials ahead. In fact, He is above the trials. He is both sovereign and good. The examiner is the provider. You know, I imagine we need to hear this as well. Would you pray with me and we'll look at the text together? Our gracious Father, we come before you not unlike these birds I just described. Weak fledglings in our own strength, unable to do that which we have been called to do, but but you see, that's how you have it set. That's how you have orchestrated it. So that in our faith, the faith that you have given us as a gift, 
we will rest. We will trust that it will not be in our own strength, our own talents, even in our own giftedness, but in our weakness, we trust in the very object of our faith, that the God who has sovereignly ordained the problems will provide the solution in your strength and in not ours. Father, I pray that we would soak this up today. I pray that as a body of believers, you would equip us so much that we would be excited to see what you are going to do in the days ahead. That when a trial comes our way, which has first passed before your throne, that we would not be rattled, but we would trust. And with eager expectation, look forward to see how you're going to guide us, shape us, care for us, and bear us up on your back and on your wings. Lord, be our refuge, be our strength. Encourage us this morning with this real flesh and blood example in Abraham. May we see it. May we see him with his feet of clay, but a heart that trusts. And may we mirror this kind of faith. And may we worship, Lord. May our response be one of worship. Stir our hearts with your word. Impact us so deeply that we would realize that it is this morning that is the very reason for which we are created, for worship. All that we are responding to all that we know of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've noticed with each one of these pericopes, they start off with the driving phrase, by faith, by faith. And the preacher is calling, he's basically calling these spiritual bench warmers to get off the bench and back onto the field. To take these 10 chapters of doctrine and now take it out for a spin. To have the faith that God has given them be a working faith. Not one that just survives. Not, the, not one that just bears up under. But one that thrives. And so he uses these real flesh and blood examples to, to encourage us. To stir our own faith. To help us realize, well, if this guy did it, not I can do it, but if this guy depended upon the Lord... That's where my faith needs to rest. You see, in each case, it's not about the person. It's about the God of our faith. It's about what a working faith looks like. Look, look at the action in this text. Let's use our tools of exposition here for a moment. Verse 17, Abraham circled, offered up Isaac. That's the action point right there. Abraham offered up Isaac. And then the rest of 17 and 18 describes the cost of that act of obedience, the cost of that faith. The one who was commanded to offer up his own son is offering up his only begotten son, the only son of his wife, Sarah, the one of the promise for which God gave him the ability to have this child. And not only that, but the very one in which God promised 
that the covenant would be fulfilled. So there's two aspects of this, that if he obeys, he thwarts the promise. Not only his only son, but the very one in which God made the promise. He promised to fulfill it through him. It's, it's an unconscionable act. It's a catch-22, you might say. It's like God's got him on a checkmate. I want you to do this, and it will kill the promise. And we feel the weight in verses 17 and 18. But then... In verse 19, we see how Abraham is able to do this unconscionable act. How he is able to actually not just put one foot in front of the other, but obey with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, Abraham considered God so trustworthy, so unchangeable, that even though he was commanded to cut off all means of the fulfillment of this promise, God would figure out a way to fulfill it. And that's the warp and woof of this passage. Even though the very thing which will thwart the entire promise, because God made it and he is unchangeable, he is the creator God of the universe, his word never fails, Abraham could do it and say, basically, God, it's your problem. You're going to have to figure this out because I can't do it. And it talks about how the only logical thing in his mind is that God must somehow plan on bringing him back to life because he will not violate his word. Now, let me just stop right there. That right there is a sermon in and of itself. That your faith is not strong. My faith is not strong based upon the strength of my faith, or my trust, or my fortitude, or my willpower. But the strength of my faith is based upon the unchangeability, the power of the object of our faith. This is why you can have faith, quote-unquote, like the, the Hollywood elites do, but it makes a difference in what you have faith in. Faith in and of itself is like sincerity. You can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. No, faith is only as powerful as the object of your faith. This is why you get the wrong Jesus. I don't care how sincere you are. Your faith is not valid. It must be the Jesus of the Bible, fully God, fully man, who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross, absorbing the just wrath of God, and when that judgment was satisfied, mercy is extended. Anything less, let me just say it this way, is an idolatrous Jesus. It may have the same name Jesus, but it's not Jesus. And what Abraham has coming out of cultic paganism is he has a real belief in Yahweh. God Almighty, the God who called him out of the earth of the Chaldees and said... I want you to go to a land I will show you with covered eyes. Trust, not in what you can do, not in how you will survive. Trust in me because of the ontology of who I am. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. And so right off the bat, before any exposition, you realize Abraham's not necessarily a deep person. He's not any smarter than you or me, he's a man whose faith is rooted in God Almighty. That's your problem, God. 
My job is just to obey. Now, you think about that. You're now first century Christian in this little Hebrew church, probably in modern day Italy, right? Maybe in Rome. It's a house church. You're tired. You're weary. You're so sick of being thought of some as some crackpot by your, your family. You're so tired of having to live in a, in a ratty part of town when you used to live in the nice Jewish quarter and, and have your friends in the synagogue and, and eat your good matzah and your food, right? And now you're just, you're ostracized. And all you have is this little church family and they're starting to kind of disperse. Times are not looking better. What administration is in power, to use a modern day term? Nero. Okay, what do you do? Do you just gut it up? Or do you remember who's called you out of your Ur of the Chaldees? Who has purchased you? You see, it's the object of our faith. That's what makes a difference. No matter how impossible our circumstances, no matter how hard the call is to obedience, we can delightfully act in obedience knowing that nothing, here's the key, nothing will prevent God from fulfilling His Word. And that, that's, that's it. Nothing will prevent God from fulfilling His Word. He is obligated by His very nature, a God who cannot lie, to fulfill it. And I think that's what's missing in our understanding of faith. I know it's what's missing in my understanding of trusting God. I just don't feel like I can trust. Circumstances are overwhelming. I'm, I'm forever saying, but you don't understand. I'm trying to be happy in, in every single case. It's my understanding of who God is. And when we understand this, I wrote down here, this removes all the spiritual butts from our obedience. You know what I mean by spiritual butts? Spiritual butts. I know the Bible says I should do this or that, but my situation is, is really, really difficult. And if I do this or that, this bad thing is going to happen. Or this person will respond this way. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. And God understands. Translation, that's situational ethics. God hates situational ethics because not only are we disobeying, now we've added deception to it to make ourselves feel good. Situational ethics is a worldly philosophy that places our comfort rather than God's glory on the throne. When we don't want to obey because it costs us and we know that the, the immediate response will be difficult, we therefore say, yeah, I know God says this, but my situation is different. Therefore, I don't have to do it. And somehow God would be pleased. That's what we do. No. You see, we as a church not only can, but should do hard, even impossible things when it comes to obedience. Because we know God is in control and his word will not change. And even though our obedience may seem to make things difficult in the short run, or even thwart what we're trying to do. That's God's problem. 
Let him fulfill his word. We're simply called to be obedient. Let me give you an example. Who are the original readers here? You remember? It's 1445 B.C. These are the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses is giving them the book of Genesis, inspired by the word of God. And it's answering the question, who is this God that we worship? In answering this question, these Israelites are having to do hard things, right? They're having to get up every day and pack things up and follow a cloud. Or travel at night and follow a pillar of fire in the midst of wilderness. But if I go further into the wilderness, how will I survive? What will I eat? What will I drink? What about marauders? What about all of the tribes that are from the Ishmaelites and Esau's family that want to attack us and kill us? What about if we get sick? How is this going to advance God's kingdom of gaining and winning the promised land when we don't ever actually get there? Somehow I don't know that I want to be obedient here. That's the situation they're in. And the response is, that's God's problem. You put one foot in front of another. You follow that cloud during the day. You follow that pillar of fire at night. And when you get up in the morning, you thank God for the food that's on the ground, the manna. You praise him for the rock that provided the water. You look down daily at your shoes that you've had for the last 10 years that aren't worn out. And you say, because I was obedient, God, he handled the problems. He handled the hurdles. They weren't even hurdles for him. He fulfilled his promise. You see, every trial is designed for our good and his glory. And his word he will not violate. Amen? Long introduction, but let me, let me tell you where we're going. The two simple points that the Israelites understood, that Abraham understood originally, and that this house church needs to understand, and we need to understand, are this. Commit yourself to the Lord. It's talking about obedience. Commit yourself to the Lord. Number one, how can we do this? Because he has already committed himself to you. Commit yourself to the Lord because he has already committed himself to you. All right, let's start by making some observations on what this commitment, what this obedience looks like. As I mentioned, the Israelites must commit themselves in utter obedience, and so they look to Father Abraham as their example. Look at, um, turn back with me, if you will. Let's look at where this originally came from. Genesis chapter 22, and starting in verse 1. Genesis chapter 22. Starting in verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, circle tested there, and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now, to take a bit of pressure off the, the readership, 
Moses is letting them know right off the bat that, that this is a test. That God does not really require child sacrifice as the pagans do, as all the tribes around them do, but that this is a test. James tells us that God does not tempt. Satan tempts. Temptation is designed for our failure. Testing is designed by God for our success, to strengthen our faith. Sometimes he uses the same thing. He uses evil. He does not ordain evil. It is not, he's not the author of evil, but he, he allows for evil. But he is testing here for success. It's designed to strengthen a man. 1 Peter 1.7 says, So that the proof of, proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. So as I'm looking at this text that the author of Hebrews is referencing, I want to make some observations. What is it about Abraham's obedience, Abraham's commitment that we are to learn from? Number one, he's available. He's available. Abraham, here I am. I'm at the ready, at your service, all has the same feel. Now that's encouraging because Abraham has had some moments of faltering faith, hasn't he? He's fallen on his face a few times, but, but now, now he is committed. And look at the level of commitment here in verse 2. Take now your son, your only son, who you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Take your son. I want you to go to this place. It sounds reminiscent of Genesis chapter 12. Go to a land I will show you. Trust me. But then there's also something else here. Take your son, your, what does your text say? Your only son. Your only son. Son is used 10 times in this text, and you're meant to feel the weight. If you're a parent here, can you even imagine? And then now add to that your only son and the very conduit, the very vehicle by which God has promised that the covenant would be fulfilled. And he says, I want you to cut it off. Now, this is not the same exact phrase in the original language as we see only begotten son, but it is reminiscent. 1 John 4, 9, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He is asking the highest of all commitments. He is asking the most difficult obedience that we could ever imagine. So whatever our situational ethics are, you don't understand my situation. This is going to be difficult. People aren't going to like me. So-and-so is going to be mad at me. I might lose my job. Nothing, nothing compares to this. And you're meant to feel that. Whatever your complaint is, whatever your excuse is, house church in Rome, this is bigger. Now watch him continue. This is not just sacrifice your son. By the way, Abraham knows well child sacrifice. He comes from Ur. 
Ur was the capital city for the moon god Nana. And if you go to that ziggurat there today, the, the archaeological dig, there are massive uh, human graves piled on with people, on top of people. Lots of child sacrifice. He came from, it's like saying, I come from Ur, the capital city of child sacrifice. He knows it well, and he was a pagan. But even more than that, putting this whole promise in jeopardy, it, it's, it's very real to him. Remember, he waited 25 years for this. And now he's watching it all seemingly disappear. It reminds me, remember Back to the Future? Marty holds the picture up, and his brother and sister start to disappear, and then he starts to disappear. Not only does Abraham see that, but think about the original audience. These are Israelites holding up their picture, and they're going, wait, if this happens, I don't exist. Think about the domino effect. Think about the domino effect. If, if, if Isaac is not around, then Isaac never marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah never have Jacob and Esau. Jacob never marries Rachel. He never has Joseph. The 70 people never go to Egypt to survive the famine. Two million Israelites disappear. If you're a Jew in the wilderness in 1445 B.C., you get it. This makes sense. That, that back to the future thing is real. Get this. If you're a Hebrew Christian in the first century in Rome, you also get it. Because then you don't exist. This is real. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God told him. Observation number two, he's obedient. He doesn't delay. He rose early in the morning. There's no haggling like in the past. There's no negotiations like with Sodom and Gomorrah. But God, but what about this? But God, I'm sure you've overlooked that. You've forgotten this. Do you understand my situation? No, he rose early. You see, he understood, like we used to tell our kiddos, that delayed obedience is what, parents? Disobedience, yeah. And so he rose early. But, but I think there's something here. Without negotiating, without complaining, he obeys. But let's, let's realize this is not easy. Let's not leave that fact of how painful this is. Because you know he woke up that morning and there was a boulder on his chest. And he was hoping it was just a dream. But he knows it wasn't. And if you look at what he does here, it says he saddled his donkey, took two men, split wood, arose. It's like he can't think straight. He's saddling his donkey and then he, he remembers to split wood. It's like, it's like starting the car, but then remembers he, he has to load it. And, and even though he has this fog of grief, 
It's not so foggy, as Kent Hughes says, that he can't see through to still be obedient. And you know what I get out of this little passage right here? Our circumstances are very real. The consequences of of obedience are very painful. It will cost us in reputation, in sustenance, in livelihood, in friendship. All that is very real, but it does not negate our call to obedience. And so he keeps going. Verse 4, And on the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Number three, he's resolved. How hard must it have been during those three days not to weep? Not to see his boy there and just start crying uncontrollably. With all the memories, his first steps, his first words, his his, his first birthday party, all these things. And he has to keep it together. He has to keep it together so much because he knows his servants will stop him if they know what he's about to do. He's that resolved. He's there to obey his God. And it's God's problem as to how he's going to fulfill this covenant promise. His job is to act in faith. This old man's pride and joy is about to lose Isaac. Remember his laughter. That was his name. And his laughter is about to fall silent and be replaced by a roaring fire. As they journey up Mount Moriah in solitude, He sees it as an act of worship. He sees his obedience as trusting God with his future. Number four, he's passionate. He's not lying because he doesn't divulge his plans to sacrifice Isaac. He's protecting the promise. As strange as it may seem, he's protecting it. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but... But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, The Lord God God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. He's not lying to him. He's saying the Lord will provide. I don't think he understands it all. I know he doesn't. But he trusts, number five, trusts in God's goodness. So much so (laughs) that he's willing to load the death fuel for his son on his own son's back like a beast of burden and see it as an act of love for God. 
I don't think we can rationalize at all in any way that somehow Abraham is detached from affection for his son. No, we cannot see that. We have to see his affection is so much for God that he is willing to do whatever and trust God will fulfill his word. You see, that, that's what I keep wanting to coming, I want to come back to here. He's trusting God will do what he said. This is not hopelessness here. This is painful circumstances. But walking in faith is not hopelessness. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That means his word is still bright. That promise hasn't dimmed at all in Abraham's eyes. It's right in front of him. And he sees that that which he is doing seems to encroach on his promise, but he sees it as a very small thing compared to God fulfilling his word, which is assured, the assurance of things hoped for. For God to break his word is an impossibility, period. So though it is painful, the promise is never in jeopardy. And he has to carry his son, carry his own death fuel. You know, a pre-Christian Jewish commentary called uh, Genesis Rabbah explains that, quote, Isaac with the wood on his back was like a condemned man carrying his own cross. I don't think they realized what they were saying. Look at verse 5. We will worship and return to you. Isn't that interesting? Now watch this narrative move into slow motion in verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. Now stop right there. Let's, let's keep in mind, this is not like he showed up, let's get this thing over with. There's a whole process of an old man and his son moving massive stones to build an altar. And, and taking the wood and laying it on there. I don't know how long it took, but I don't think it was done in 10 or 15 minutes. This took a long time. And then it says, it bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Number six, he continues in obedience. You know, nothing is said there, but it's at that point when there is no lamb that Abraham says, you're the sacrifice. Don't think Isaac didn't cry. Don't think that the both of them didn't hold each other tightly in embrace, weeping, wailing. If you've ever seen Middle Easterners cry, they wail with grief. They express it far more than we do. And yet Isaac doesn't fight his old man. Trust me, a 16-year-old, he could take a 127-year-old guy, okay? He could take him. Whatever he was, 150. He could take him. But he allowed himself to be bound and he climbs up on the altar himself. And Abraham continues in obedience. I wrote down a practical application here. I said, let's be honest, how many of us start out well? But when we realize that to obey is going to cost us, that it's not going to go our way, we run off the field and onto the bench. 
And yet Abraham has to realize at this point, I'm going to have to go through with this. And he continues on in obedience. I can think of all the excuses I could have come up with. Spiritual excuses. Hey, Isaac, I think we ought to camp out here for a few days and just wait on the Lord's will. Hey, I think you need to go down the mountain. I need to seek some counsel on this until I find the counsel I like, right? We could spiritualize all of this, but he says, no, I heard a word from the Lord. I'm going to obey that word. God's word can be trusted. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. Look at our second point. As he has already committed himself to you. How? How can Abraham possibly trust God to this level? How can God expect us to trust him to this level? How can the preacher to the Hebrews expect them to trust at this level? Why, why this, this illustration? How can he truly commit his whole world in this boy, the future of the promise, not to mention his own heart? How could he possibly do this? Well, the simple answer is this, because God has already committed himself to us. That's what makes it not only doable, but easy. How could God commit to us and yet he's already done it. You see, Abraham has God's word on it. Listen to Genesis 17, 19. But God said, no, but Sarah will be your wife and will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Sarah was yet to be pregnant. Isaac was yet to be born. Isaac was yet to be named. And he says, no, it's not going to be through anyone else. It's going to be through Sarah. It's going to be a boy named Isaac. He will be the one. Abraham's got the revealed word of God. What do we have? We talked about it this morning. We have the very revealed word word of God on it that has never failed. Amen. It's never faltered, always trustworthy. Yeah, but you don't understand what he's asking me to do. You don't understand what will happen to me. Oh, really? Really? Is it worse than what Abraham went through? And yet Abraham didn't doubt. Why? He's got God's word on it. If you have the word, the promise, you know, Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a thousand needles in my eye. That was the height in sixth grade. That was the greatest promise imaginable. You know, Joey the liar would say it, and all of a sudden we trusted him, right? But Joey the liar, I know, but he said a thousand needles and it was over his mother's dead body. I know. It's real. This is God. God of the universe promised, swore swore on himself. This is as good as done. 
I don't think the question is, how could he do it? How could we do it? How can we do it? I think the question is, how could he not? How can we not delightfully obey, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of persecution, which we haven't even tasted yet? How can we not, when God has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, when he promises no one will ever snatch you out of the palm of my hand, when he promises all things work together for our good and his glory, how could we not obey? And that is exactly what Abraham is thinking. That is exactly how can I not? God's word cannot be broken. I don't know how he's going to do this, but if I have to kill this boy, though I've never seen a resurrection in my life, somehow that boy will live. Somehow God will bring him back to life. How? Because in my mind as Abraham, the only way this promise is going to be fulfilled is through that boy. So God's going to keep him around. Now, all of a sudden, that takes our faith to a whole new dimension. Because it's based upon God and his word. Abraham is banking on God's impossibility to break his word. Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Do we have this kind of faith? Before we say it's hard, I think we have to realize what's above it's hard. But it's the Word of God. Everything God is asking us to do with regards to His obedience is based upon His Word, which cannot fail. It's not about us keeping it together. It's not about us just sucking it up and being tough. It's about God's word being unable to fail because he is the one who keeps it. Well, watch what happens. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, what? At the ready. Here I am. Here I am. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And in the nick of time, the blade was released from its trajectory towards the boy's throat. And you know he hit the ground weeping and praising God Verse 13, and Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the, the, the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son as a substitute. And Abraham called the name of that place, verse 14, Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide. It is said to this day, the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. The examiner is the provider. And in that moment, 
Abraham sunk deep into the back of those eagle's wings and God provided. In that moment, the Lord provides a substitute lamb so that Isaac will live, watch this, so that the original audience, so that two million Israelites will live and they get it. And across the congregation around Mount Sinai, you hear a hurrah, hurrah, cheers. I don't know what kind of Jewish hurrah sounds like, okay? But, you know, let's go with it. But he's, they're, they're screaming, they're cheering, they're happy, they're clapping, there's dancing. They get it. It makes sense. When they woke up that next morning and they had that manna off the ground and they drank that water and they saw their shoes that didn't wear out and they looked at that cloud, they said, let's go. We can do this. Why? We can commit ourselves to the Lord. Why? Because he has already committed himself to us. You see, it all comes together in that moment. The substitute lamb means that when they look at their firstborn boy, many who were named Isaac, they realize he survived because the angel passed over and their boy didn't die. They realize that when they sacrifice it on the eighth day after that child is born, they realize that each year at Rosh Hashanah, when a lamb is sacrificed for the congregation, when a ram is sacrificed, they realize it, that God provided Yahweh Yireh, a substitute so that they might live. Do you think that this Christian church in the first century under Nero realizes that God provided Jesus Christ as a substitute lamb so that they might live? Congregation, Metro Bible, do we understand that? This is not about gutting it up with our obedience. This is about realizing God has already committed to us it is finished. If God has already committed to us his only begotten son as a substitute lamb so that we might live, guess what? Everything else for us is gravy. Every other act of obedience is small potatoes because God provides. So, why do we trust and obey? Because God's committed himself to us. We learned this morning in equipping hour. And it didn't stop here, did it? What happened when they got to uh, the River Jordan? Went into the promised land for seven years. He fought their battles. He provided. When they sinned and went into captivity, he provided judges. He raised them up so that they might free them. He gave them a man after God's own heart in King David. He provided and provided and provided and eventually provided a Messiah. So let me ask us this. What obedience is too difficult for us? What are we not trusting God for? Let's go deeper. What in our view of Almighty God is deficient that is impeding our obedience? Missionary Hudson Taylor had complete trust in God's faithfulness. And he puts it into perspective here. 
He said, quote, Our Heavenly Father is a very experienced one. He knows very well that his children wake up each morning with a good appetite. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect that he will send three million missionaries to China, but if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. Depend upon it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord will provide. Romans 8.31, God is for us. What? Finish it. Who can be against us? Well, verse 18, he says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. Let me leave us with one verse out of the book of Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Family, if we're struggling with obedience, and we all do, the problem is a misunderstanding of God. Because we can commit to him because he has already committed to us and his word is unchangeable.